Heavenly Father, we thank you for the testimonies this morning, for the prayer, for the worship time, for the opportunity, Father, in fellowship, for the joy of being who we are in Christ and sharing that with others. Thank you, Father. And yes, Father, we will reach points in our life in which the world and the sin that is in this world will cause us to suffer in many ways. But Father, as the testimony this morning said, we we know that you are working to a good end. That good end, Father, is an eternal end. That the good that you are working toward, Father, is ultimately seen in a new body on a new earth with the Lord reigning. And we set our hope on that day. And thank you, Father, that we can study with regard to your work in the world and your plans for creation as we go and continue through the book that you gave us in Genesis. Father, pray, I pray that the teaching, as always, would be according to your spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Genesis chapter 4. And as we begin chapter 4, you have Adam and Eve beginning their new life outside the garden as a married couple. And I think if, at first, life here isn't too bad. They have what appear to be the beginnings of a good marriage. For one thing, Adam didn't have to hear about all the men that Eve could have married instead of him. And <laughs> Eve didn't hear stories about how well Adam's mother cooks. And, and no in-laws, no siblings, no noisy neighbors. This is a pretty good start compared to what we often deal with. And though they are under the curse that is now on the world because of sin, that curse that affects, as we talked about last week, all these various aspects of the world, the full effect of that curse is not going to be evident for many centuries. And in particular for their own lives, they'll lead lives of of centuries long here at this point. The curse takes time to take effect, which we'll come back and talk more about that when we get to the days of Noah. But for now, in case we're tempted to think it's all wine and roses and that the the sin of the garden had no immediate effect, we have chapter 4 to dispel that notion so that we immediately understand how the sin in the garden changed life on earth. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I've gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Now we're going to pause at this verse and several others along the way, because to really understand what's going on in chapter 4, particularly the first half of chapter 4, we'll have to become scholars of Hebrew for just a, a short time. Because the Hebrew is very inscrutable, it's very parsimonious, there's not a lot of words, and the English translators had to work very hard to make sense of it, and I will tell you, I think they messed up in a few places here, so you'll see what I mean as we move through it. The chapter opens here with Adam and Eve having their first child. Adam and Eve were told have relations. By the way, the word relations there in Hebrew, yada, 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 yada. Next time you hear that word used, you'll know what you're saying. Maybe you'll think twice about it. This is unlikely the first time that they've been together in this way, to be discreet. The reference to one flesh back in chapter 2 would suggest that they consummated the marriage right from the start. So this isn't a new experience per se. What's new in this is that God has given them the chance to conceive, and that, that conception now has come to the point of Cain, a child is born. With no prior experience in childbirth, and I don't just mean for her own sake, I mean never having seen it, period. Never having ever known that this could happen, much less what it would be like. It must have been both scary and awesome and awe-inspiring all at the same time. For, can you imagine the very first woman to have birth? No, no maid servant there, no midwife, no hospital, no drugs. 
No, there's nothing here. I mean, this is the first time one human being gives life to another, which is obvious enough. But just thinking about that long enough, you begin to realize how hard that must have been, how different that must have been. Eve, the mother of the living, as her name implies, witnesses for the first time what God's promise meant when she was told she would be the mother of all the living. She says, oh, this is what it means. (laughs) This is what it's going to be like. I'm going to have to have four billion children. No, no, wait a minute. It works through a succession of, oh, okay, that's better. So the first baby is born, and I also wonder, just in passing, uh, what did they understand about how to care for it? What about the umbilical cord? What about all of that goes with it? I mean, the God must have been ministering to her through angels or in other ways so that she would understand some of these basic things, being the first mom. Which is a reminder to all moms, by the way, that if God had to teach Eve, he can handle anyone being a mom. There's, there's, there's no one outside his reach. So they have Cain. In Hebrew, it's Cain, Cain, K-A-I-A-N, Cain, which comes from a Hebrew root word, kin, which literally means to give form to or give shape to. So he's being named in respect to that, th- that thought. I have given shape to a man. I have produced somebody. Cain. Then... Eve adds this really interesting phrase at the end of of the verse I just read. And the Hebrew in the last part of this verse is very important to understanding its meaning. In Hebrew, the last part of verse 1, literally, if I take each Hebrew word and move it into English without doing anything else, just English coming out of Hebrew, this is what it literally says at the end of that first verse. I have received boy Jehovah. I have received boy Jehovah. Now, translators throughout the centuries, have struggled to make sense of this statement, usually by placing other words in the verse to create a full meaning. They, they have to make some assumptions about what's being said, and so they'll stick pronouns and prepositions in the sentence, trying to make sense of it. But the honest truth is that Moses meant it exactly the way he wrote it. Eve is announcing that she has given birth to God in the form of a boy. A God-man. Remember, God promised Eve back in the garden in chapter 3 that she would bring a child who would crush Satan. That through her seed, he would restore what had been done by her sin in the garden. Remember that? Why do we assume, why should we assume, that she would understand that that's a millennial-long process? Wouldn't the natural assumption, if you're a woman, if you're Eve, wouldn't the natural assumption in the moment be, I get to give birth to the seed who's going to solve this problem. In other words, she thinks she's going to give birth to the Messiah. Cain comes along, voila, Messiah. And she gives him the name Cain in part because she is implying, I've given shape, I've given form to God. God in the form of man. It's a natural assumption. But before long, boy number two comes along. Verse 2, again she gave birth to his brother, Abel, and Abel was keeper of flocks, but Cain was tiller of the ground. Now, to put this verse into perspective with the first verse, you need to look at the Hebrew again with me here. The name Abel in Hebrew is Habel, but it can also be spelled Habal, with an A instead of an E. Habel means vapor. Habal means vanity. Vanity. Vapor, vanity. It's sort of a synonym in Hebrew. Well, think about what she's saying here when you look at those, that name. 
there's a prophetic meaning there first in the fact that she calls him after vapor. We know Abel's future, right? He's going to be killed. He's going to be short-lived. He's as if his life is like a vapor, here and gone. So there's a prophetic meaning in his name. But in the way the name can also be translated vanity, we see something going on in Eve's mind. Because at about the time Abel comes along, Cain, her little Messiah, is going through terrible twos. This perfect little God child is driving me nuts. He's more like a devil child than he is like a God child. If you've had two-year-olds, you know exactly what we're talking about. She's probably rethinking the whole God in man's form thing right about now. She's starting to realize, I don't think I had God. In fact, I'm wondering if he's the other seed. And that's causing her to think twice about her assumptions. And as she sees this in Cain, and she sees another child come along, and she realizes, you mean I'm going to have more of these babies? This process isn't finishing with just one. This is, this is longer than just Cain. And having learned her lesson, she declares by naming Abel vanity that she was vain on her part to assume that she would give birth to the Messiah. He now understands it may not be Cain or Abel or any of my children for that matter. God's got a plan here that doesn't end with my birth of a child. You know, God is doing this routinely in the sense that he frustrates pride. He frustrates prideful people who believe they are integral to something God is doing. The moment we think too much of ourselves in God's purpose and planning is about the time he will start to do something to show us clearly we aren't as important as we think we are. Whether it's in our families, in our workplace, or in the church, that God is working through multitudes of people to his own glory, and he works best with people who think least of themselves. The line of Messiah is in God's control. It's in his choosing who will be in that line, not in our choosing. And this, by the way, begins a pattern in the book of Genesis that Moses will continue all the way through the narrative. This pattern here in which there will be two children and the world will assume one is the appointed Messiah or the line of Messiah. And wouldn't you know it, before it's all said and got done, God makes clear, no, no, it's not the guy you thought it would be. I have a different one in, in, in mind. And it'll always be the one you didn't expect. Later, when you look at the book of Samuel, First and Second Samuel, but particularly in First Samuel, what do we find with David? The last you'd expect is the one God has chosen. And we will see this pattern over and over in Genesis. I'm mentioning it here only in passing, but it will become very clear as we go further into the story that Moses tells. Now, going back to verse 2, we hear that these two boys have different professions, different walks of life. Cain, for example, is called a keeper of flocks, while Abel is a farmer. Now, we could understand the need for farming. You've got to eat, and God has appointed the, the food of the world to be plants for these people. But what are the flocks for if we're not going to kill the animals and eat their meat? Remember, eating meat is not instituted until chapter 9 of Genesis. Well, the answer must be twofold. One, the animal husbandry allows for milk, cheese, whatever comes from milk. This is part of the reason why they kept animals. Secondly, they're used as a purpose in worship. And that becomes evident here in the next series of verses. Look at verse 3. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. 
This is an interesting series of verses. In fact, with these three plus what follows in verse 6 are some of the most inscrutable verses of, of Genesis, certainly, maybe of the whole Bible. And there's been much debate about what's really being said here. So let's see if we can sort it out. It begins simply enough, in the course of time. Now, what Moses is emphasizing, even with something that simple, is that what goes on next in this chapter is according to the natural course of events now. This is the world as it truly is. It's inevitability, the inevitability of what comes from the fall, in other words. This is no longer the garden. You're no longer in Kansas anymore, as the saying goes. This is the world that is now under the curse and subject to sin, and here are the consequences. So in the course of time should be heard in your mind and in my mind as, now let's look at what comes next from the garden. Cain and Abel here bringing an offering to God. Cain and Abel are directed to approach God periodically with sacrifices. Right away, right away we're struck by something because there is no law given at this point. Moses is centuries, millennia away from existing. The moment of Moses bringing the law down from the mountain, that's nowhere in view yet. How do they know to sacrifice? What rules are they following? Where are they getting all the knowledge that they need to to even know that they have to do this? Well, the obvious answer, and it's not in the text, but the obvious answer is God must at some point have revealed to Cain and Abel the necessity of atonement because of sin. God is the same today as he was yesterday and as he will be tomorrow. His rules aren't changing. His expectations aren't changing. But what does change over time is his degree of revelation. He tells something today. He'll tell more of himself tomorrow. He reveals yet more of himself later. We're told in the book of Hebrews that though he spoke in many ways and in many portions to the fathers of the past, today he has spoken once and for all through his son. So we have the fullest measure of revelation possible in the knowledge of who the Messiah is, in his words, in his life, now in the word of God as it reveals all of that. But back at this very early stage, they would have had only a portion of what we know today. But whatever that portion was, whatever God communicated, it included that if you are sinning, you owe sacrifice for sin. Here's how you do it. Notice what that says about their relationship with God. God and man are still in a relationship. Isn't this interesting? They still know who God is. They're still approaching God even after the garden. But it's a different kind of relationship. Where before God and man were in the garden walking together in the cool of the day, enjoying each other's company, now man is seen approaching God with payments, with atonements for sin, in an effort to appease God's wrath. That's the nature of a relationship between sinful men and a holy and righteous God. Inevitably, that's what sin produced. A faraway adversarial relationship in which men had a debt before God and God was a just God who keeps debts paid. And under that kind of a relationship, there needed to be atonement. There needed to be some manner in which sin could be covered, at least temporarily. The injury that sin did to the relationship is evident in the way these two boys are caught up. Notice the two boys, they weren't in the garden. They didn't eat the fruit, did they? When you hear people question or wonder about the concept that Christianity holds concerning original sin, that all men and women share today in that original event, Because the sin of the garden is inherited in everyone who comes from Adam and woman. When that concept is foreign to some minds, you might think to take them here and show that even two boys who were not in the garden 
are yet still sacrificing to God because of their own sin. Evidence that they brought into the world a sin nature that they received from their parents. And that has continued to everyone after Adam and Eve. So each man brings a different offering. Let's look at what they actually do here. This is where the controversy begins. Each one brings a different offering and each gains a different reaction from God. There's several clues here. I want to go through the text and point them out. And let's see if we can come to an understanding of what's going on. First clue. Let's understand Cain's offering first. He brings a grain offering. Now that's natural for Cain, right? Because his job is to work the field. What he has is what his field produces. And in the law, Moses provided for grain sacrifices or grain offerings in the temple. You see that going on here, a grain offering coming from Cain, consistent with what God's law will eventually provide. But grain offerings in the law are always directed for one purpose and one purpose only, tithe. You gave grain to tithe. But now look at the second clue, and that being what Abel brought. It says he brings an animal sacrifice, a first slaying, which means literally firstborn. He takes a firstborn from his flock. Obviously, he kills it because he brings fat portions. He had to take the animal and kill it to get to the fat. So he brings the animal's fat, which if that's the case, it's it's consistent again with the law that Moses receives, where animal fat was brought into the temple. Because it's oily, it burns very easily. So animal fat was to be burned up on the altar, and that smoke would rise to God as a pleasing sacrifice to God. So if Abel's bringing fat portions, it implies a burned sacrifice is taking place in the midst of this moment. Now, that represents the second major type of offering that took place under the law. I keep referring to the law of Moses, not because I'm suggesting they had received the law of Moses, but my assumption is the same God that gives the law at a later date would still have had the same rules at this earlier date, and he would have revealed some portion of them to these men. And along with whatever else he revealed, he obviously told them, I will receive grain from you and I will receive animal sacrifices from you. But then we can go a step further and we can assume that the reasons are also the same. I want grain for tithe. I want animal sacrifices for its purpose. And under the law, animal sacrifices were for only one purpose. To atone for sin. So you have one man bringing a tithe and you have Abel here bringing an animal sacrifice, which would make it a sin offering, a sin atonement. Now, there is a third clue here at the beginning of verse 4, but only in the Hebrew. The Hebrew, like I mentioned earlier, is limited here to just a few words in the actual Hebrew, which leaves a lot of room for interpretation. The Hebrew is habel gam bo. Two words, gam bo. Habel gam bo, which is most literally translated Abel also brought. Abel also brought. What does it mean, he also brought? Think about it. If it was simply a matter of one brought this, grain, the other brought this, animal, why would I use the word also? Wouldn't I say, Cain brought grain, but Abel brought an animal? It makes no sense, really, grammatically, for you to say, Cain brought grain, Abel also brought animal. My understanding of what this says in Hebrew is, Cain brought grain offering. 
Abel brought grain and also brought an animal sacrifice. Both men were bringing some measure of tithe. In Abel's case, it wouldn't have been grain. More likely, it would have been an animal or something else. Under the law, you could bring turtle doves. You could bring small animals as an offering for tithe. But he went a step further than his brother. He also took the fat portions of a firstling and sacrificed those for atonement. That would be the best way, in my understanding, to reconcile the Hebrew here. We see confirmation of this, in case you think I've driven off the reservation and I'm in la-la land. There's confirmation of this in Hebrews chapter 11, when the writer of Hebrews describes this same moment. Listen to this one verse. Hebrews 11, verse 4. See if you can find the proof. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. Gifts, plural. Abel is said to have brought gifts, plural. My belief is that that's confirmation that he was bringing both the tithe as God expected and the atoning sacrifice, which God expected. The last clue is found in the way God responds to Cain and to Abel. God, as we are told, has regard for what Abel does, but does not have regard for Cain. In fact, in Hebrew, it's literally the same word. Sha'ah is regard. The only difference is for Cain, there's a negative in front of it. So he does not regard is the literal Hebrew. What it means is God gave attention to Abel, accepted it, in other words. For Cain, he disregarded it, did not accept it. Why does God see the two sacrifices or the two gifts differently since we know they're both legitimate? Tithes are legitimate. Animal sacrifices are legitimate. Why wouldn't they both be equivalent? Why was his better in some way? Well, there's been a lot of speculation about this, as you might imagine. Well, Abel is tithing and sacrificing. Cain is only tithing. The problem is Cain is missing a piece of the puzzle. He didn't do everything God wanted him to do. Well, that's getting close to the truth, but there's something deeper going on here. Consider some other scripture with me for a moment. 1 Samuel 15:22 Samuel says, "Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams." You see even him he mentions the fat as part of that sacrifice, right? Hosea says in chapter 6 verse 6, For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. These are God's words again about what he prefers. First John, though, in probably the definitive commentary on this moment, says this. First John 3.11. John says, For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother, And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Scripture teaches first that sacrifice is made necessary because of sin. The reason that God even instituted sacrifice is because of sin. But it also says in the verses I just read, God is a lot more interested in our obedience so that we don't even have to sacrifice because we don't have sin, in other words than he is if we run around doing all the sacrifices just perfectly well. You see the point, right? Think of it from a parent's point of view. Would you rather have a child who satisfies all your punishment requirements perfectly every time they get in trouble, or a child who just never gets in trouble? 
You see, that's God's point. So if he has to choose, he'd rather have obedience than someone who, in sin, continues to sacrifice every time they sin. Secondly, John says that the key difference between Cain and Abel was that Cain was of the enemy and his actions were evil and Abel's actions were righteous. Well, let me ask you, based on the testimony of Scripture, how does anyone do anything that God would declare to be righteous? By what manner, by what method does someone gain the testimony that they acted righteously? Are good works righteous? What does Isaiah say about our good works? They are filthy rags in God's eyes, that they don't even amount to goodness in his eyes, though we see them as goodness. What does the writer of Hebrews tell us in chapter 11? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. The the two comments tie together a very important concept. When we do what God calls us to do in faith, by definition, we did a righteous work. But anything we would do outside of an action driven by faith in God, anytime we do it of our own desires, our own ideas, our own purposes, it ceases to be a righteous work because our inherent nature is sinful. We can't do anything righteous by our own nature. Only when we're listening to the Spirit of God, following Him in faith, are we capable of righteousness. So when I hear Scripture say that Abel's sacrifice was righteous, what do I have to hear? In faith, he did as God asked him to do. God declared that to be a righteous work. Likewise, when I hear him say that Cain was of the enemy, that means Satan, and doing an evil deed, then by definition I must have to conclude he was not acting in faith. He was acting in a fleshly desire. Something of his own motivation, something of his own sinful heart was prompting him to do what he did. What we understand through all of that is God condemns or does not regard Cain's sacrifice because it came with an unbelieving heart. That's a convicting message, folks. It reminds us that no matter how often someone comes into the building on Sunday, no matter how often they pray, or no matter how much money they give the church, no matter how church-like their life looks, if there is not faith in the heart, God has no regard for it. There's no one outside this room that's paying any attention to it. On the other hand, we can have a fairly inauspicious life for whatever reason, but act and live in faith, trusting in God to make up for our deficiencies, and he can look upon our miserable efforts and call them righteous, only because they were done in faith. What kind of faith are we talking about in their cases here? What is it they have faith in or or lack faith in? After all, Jesus hadn't shown up by this point. No one was standing there on the street corner with tracks calling out Jesus' name, right? So what is it they have faith in or lack thereof? Well, with Cain, the only conclusion we're left with based on what we know in Scripture up to this point is Cain did not believe in the promises of God concerning atonement. Remember, that's the thing he didn't do. It seems evident he didn't have any faith that atonement was even needed for his own sake. Cain didn't believe he had sin that needed atonement. Isn't that the unbelieving world's perspective? They may acknowledge they're not perfect, but they hardly think they have anything to worry about when it comes to God. They trust that when they get to heaven, it'll all work out somehow. After all, on balance, they're better than Hitler. And by the way, thank goodness Hitler existed for the sake of all the unbelievers, because who would they have to compare themselves to if he hadn't come along, right? I'm being facetious, but isn't that always the classic example? 
Maybe before him it was Genghis Khan. Maybe it was Pontius Pilate, Napoleon. It has to be some despot that makes us feel better about ourselves so that we can sleep at night and believe that at the end we'll all end up in heaven. Thank goodness there's somebody rottener than us. Or so they think. Cain didn't accept the reality of sin. He didn't accept his own sin. He didn't accept that sacrifice for sin was even necessary. He's the quintessential unbeliever. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And how can we know that Cain's lack of faith is the cause of God's displeasure in his sacrifice? Just look at the next verse as we finish. This will be the last one, last couple for the day. Verse 6, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Two of the most nonsensical verses in the entire Bible, as they have been translated into English. They make great sense in Hebrew, but the way these have been translated into, Hebrew, into English does tremendous violence to the meaning of these verses. If your Bible says anything close to what I just read, pay no attention to it. Not to the Hebrew, not to the original text, not to God's Word, but to this specific way of interpreting it into English. I defy you to make sense of verse 7 in the English. He says, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. If you do not do well, isn't sin already there? And you must master it? To what unbeliever does God ever say anywhere in the Bible... The solution to your problem is you have to master sin. Is that a biblical concept? No, it's anti-biblical. That is not even close to a good interpretation of what's actually being said in the Hebrew. And we just have to think about it logically long enough to realize that makes no sense. What is it really saying? Let's understand that. Let's go to the Hebrew and let's get through this knowing what the Bible as a whole teaches about sin and how God responds to an unbeliever. Let's note in passing here, this is the first mention of Anger in the Bible. First time somebody gets angry, it's Cain at God. Cain expresses anger here because why? God didn't accept or regard his sacrifice. Are you like me? Are you left feeling here that maybe Cain is having a pity party here a little bit? He's pouting. He went to this effort after all. He got all this stuff together, brought it to God. And how dare God not accept my offering? Do you sense that in the text? I do. That's how I feel Cain is responding here to the moment. The praise was expected, and when it didn't come, when it didn't come from God, it angered him. Do you sense something about his heart there? God looks at him and says, why are you angry? Why are you disappointed? This is a rhetorical question. For anyone who doesn't know, rhetorical questions are questions that don't need to be answered. And people always joke, well, when you explain what rhetorical is, Steve, you've kind of violated the principle of rhetorical. Clearly it's rhetorical, but it begs a question. The wisdom of God is on full display here with this question. Why are you angry? Isn't it an odd question? Why wouldn't Cain be angry? If I'm Cain in that moment, I'm going to look at God and I'm going to say, well, you know why I'm angry. Isn't it obvious why I'm angry? Why would you ask me that question? Look at verse 7. God says, if you do well, Cain... Will not your countenance be lifted up? Now, this is where the verse starts to get wrong. Let's get this part right, and it'll start to all fall into place, like a big puzzle. It'll all fall into place. In Hebrew, most of the words I just read are not there. Hebrew is a very parsimonious language. One word can mean a lot. They don't have pronouns in most cases. They keep things very simple, and the context drives you to an understanding. 
So here's what it literally says in Hebrew. God says, why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? Then he says, do well, be raised up. That's all it is in Hebrew. Do well, be raised up. Do well, be raised up. Now, again, if I don't try to stick in there words that aren't there, words like countenance, words like will, if, words that are not there in the Hebrew, if I just read it the way it is, it actually makes more sense. What do you say to an unbeliever who's angry that their sacrifices, their ritual, their practice in life, their rules, their religion is not going to get them to heaven? And you tell them that and they get angry at you? What do you mean? Why isn't this good enough? How come I can't just genuflect, pray the rosary, do this, do that, do this, and go to heaven? How come it doesn't work? Who did, who's to say that won't work? And God's response is, well, why are you angry? If, if that's all good, then you have no reason to be angry, right? If you have no sin, why are you angry? Here's Abel giving burned sacrifices, and God's giving regard for that because it is the necessary atonement for Abel's sin. Cain, on the other hand, no sacrifice. But he's upset that God's not paying attention to him. And he's angry. And God looks at him and says, why are you angry? Your brother has sin and he's offering sacrifice for sin and I'm giving regard to that. If you don't have sin, you don't have any reason to be angry. You'll be raised up. You'll be resurrected. You'll be in heaven. If you have no sin, then none of this should matter to you. You have no reason to be angry if you really believe you have no sin. That's what he's saying to Cain. On the other hand, he says, if you do not do well. Now, before we go any further into the text, what's the alternative to doing well and being raised up? If that means living without sin and therefore having an expectation of heaven. On the other hand, Cain, if you don't do well, what does that mean? If you have sin, right? If you are a sinner, after all, if in the end you do sin, well, then that's a different conversation. And then he gives the solution. If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Not doing well is the opposite of doing well. So this means sinning. If you sin, then sin is crouching at the door. What do you mean it's crouching at the door? It's, at the very least, that's redundant. If I've already sinned, then having more sin crouching at the door means nothing to me at that point. Let's look at the Hebrew again. The word for sin here, chata, it's used throughout the Old Testament but it's almost never translated the way it's translated right here. It's often, most often, translated sin offering. Sin offering. In fact, you see a similar application in the New Testament in Greek. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21, talking about Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, He, God the Father, He made Him, the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. You all know that verse? Is it often kind of troubled you a little bit? What does it mean that God made Jesus sin on our behalf? Well, the solution is it doesn't mean sin there either. It means sin offering. It's the same word again. Listen to it with that word. God the Father, He made Jesus, Him, who knew no sin to be sin offering on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's the sense of the word, the true sense of the word. So back now, in Cain's case, God says, if you do sin, after all, then there is sin offering. And then the English says, crouching. Now, how do we make sense of that word here? Sin is waiting to get me? Well, you already got me. I didn't do well. That means I already have it. 
Sin is going to tempt me some more? Well, no. But again, if I go to the Hebrew, I'm going to find a different word. The word in Hebrew is literally lying, as in lying down. It's the word for lying down. But it's an interesting word in the Hebrew. It's a word that's almost always used in a very specific context. Like, for example, I can talk about John or some other person lying down or reclining, right? But if I talk about my dog, I typically don't say my dog is reclining. He's laying down. Hey, where's the dog? Oh, he's laying over there. Where's the cat? She's laying on the bed, unfortunately. In Hebrew, there's a similar kind of distinction. This word for lying down is the one you normally would apply to a four-legged animal. Quatruped, in other words. It's a word for farmers that they use when a horse or a goat or a, a lamb is on the ground. It's not used typically for people. A sin offering is lying on the ground, meaning an animal is on the ground, or four-legged creature. We could assume for the moment a lamb. It doesn't say lamb, but we could assume that, let's say. So, if you do not do well, if you sin, a sin offering is lying. And then the word after that is doorway, lying in the doorway. And then desire, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. How many words do you think are in Hebrew in that phrase? There's only two Hebrew words being used to translate into, and its desire is for you and you must master it. A little bit of creativity coming up with that, isn't it? Here's what the words are in English, literally. Teshwaka and mashal, not that you'd know those, but those are the two words in Hebrew. Teshwaka means desire. Desire. It only occurs three times in the Bible. You've already studied one of them. It's what a woman will have for her husband in Genesis 3. A woman will desire her husband. It's here and it's in the book of Song of Solomon, remember? For a, ma- for a man having desire, sexual desire, for her, his wife. So in two of the three, it's used in a positive sense. A woman will love her husband, and a man will love his wife, and then you have this middle example. And yet, in some way, for some reason, the translators took this middle example and decided this is a negative connotation. Sin is desiring you in a bad way. Why would I come to that conclusion? The word's only been used three other t- two other times in the Bible, and all two, both times it was in a positive context. What happens if I apply it in a positive context here? Where does that leave me? And then the next word, mashal, means a master or a ruler. A master or a ruler. How do I put that together? Well, let me ask you, do you get an image in your mind when you think about an animal lying in a doorway? What comes to mind? The blood of the lamb over the door in Passover. Don't you get that perspective? Don't you see an allusion to that here? God says to Cain, why are you angry? If you don't have sin, you have nothing to worry about. You'll be raised up. On the other hand, if you do have sin, there are sin sacrifices available on the door. You need to have a desire for your master. You need to desire the Lord, the sacrificial lamb, who is that ultimate sacrifice to deal with this problem. It's the gospel. It's a little oblique, I understand, but it is the gospel. It is a simple, elegant way for God to tell Cain, You really have no reason to be angry. Either you're not a sinner, in which case you have nothing to worry about, or if you are, I am making a sacrifice available for you in the form of your master, Christ. One way or the other, you're covered. The only way in which you're not covered is if he thinks he's not a sinner, but he is. 
If he's wrong, in other words, about who he thinks he is. If he thinks he doesn't need sacrifice and so he doesn't go for it, he doesn't take advantage of it, then he's out on his own. And the wages of sin are death. God tells him, you should have a desire for your master because the solution to your anger and to your dejection is to accept the sacrifice of Christ. That message has never changed. It's exactly the same one today. If you think you're perfect, good luck. My license plate says, if you're living like there is no God, you better be right. It's probably why it gets cut off a lot in traffic. <laughs> but if you are a sinner, if you know that's in your heart, if you know you are not perfect before God, then you had better take advantage of the sacrifice God has made available in Christ, for that is the only way he is willing to overlook the sin of men. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Father, I pray that for all the words spoken and for all of the the details that have been offered here, that the most important one would never be overlooked, Father. That sin has brought about a damage in our relationship with you and that you have made the gracious opportunity for us to be repaired in that relationship, but only through the accepting of Christ and his sacrifice. For all that I said, Father, let that be the message that is remembered most of all. Let us carry it in our hearts in true faith. Let us share it with others who have yet to know it. Let us live in such a way that we reflect it as we look forward to the day in which we will see you face to face. Thank you, Father, for Oak Hill Bible Church, for the men who serve, for the women who who serve here as well, for the many, many activities in this body. Father, let us serve an even greater number, if it be your will. Help us to see how we can do that, Father. And let us go out from here as ambassadors of Christ. We look forward to returning next week and we ask that you would bring us back. We pray all of these things in the confidence to bring it before you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.